You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Ben Bickman. Ben and I talk about why we get sick and the fact that there's a very high chance that you right now listening to this have insulin resistance and we talk about what that means and why it plays a massive factor in almost every chronic disease but the good news is we can reverse insulin resistance and ben and i dig into this today so this is definitely one you're going to want to listen to maybe break up the notepad and make some notes before we get into the episode if anyone is currently listening to this on itunes apple podcasts we are giving away a free book to one person who leaves us a five star rating and written review will announce who wins that book on Instagram. The book will be chosen by Joe and myself, and it will be a book that we believe is of very good information and value to the person that wins. So, yeah, leave a rating and a review, and we may be sending one to your door next week. So, without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Ben Bickman. Ben, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for reaching out. Always happy to have a new audience. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And I want to start off, let's, let's try and define things before we jump into it. So you say that insulin resistance itself won't kill you, but it will lead towards diseases that will. Um, in fact, you say that insulin resistance is connected to almost every chronic disease. So, like I said, let's make sure we define everything in the simplest way for, yeah. for our audience who, who might be completely new to this. So, let's start right at the start. Could you first describe what insulin is and what it does for the body? Yeah. So, insulin is a hormone, and there are, of course, countless hormones flowing through the blood at any moment. And this is a hormone that will, it's created in one little spot of the body in the pancreas, and then it flows through the blood and has an effect on literally every single cell. So every cell in the body will respond to insulin in one way or another. Now, typically, or, or conventionally, we look at the effects of insulin almost totally through the lens of what it does to glucose. Because we eat a starchy, sugary meal, glucose will climb. That is not healthy for the glucose to stay elevated. So insulin comes in as the hero and insulin will be released from the pancreas. And one of its jobs, although for most people, they only think of this, they think of this as insulin's only job, but insulin will open the doors um, in muscle and fat cells in particular, allowing the glucose to come rushing from the blood into those cells until the blood glucose levels come back down. So that's insulin's main or, or most famous job. But the truth is insulin does things all over the body. It tells every cell to do something. And the theme of all of that 
from every cell in the body is that insulin tells the cell what to do with energy, what to do with nutrients, what to do with glucose and amino acids and fatty acids and what to do with ketones and, and lactate, all these molecules that can be used for energy. Insulin will tell a cell what to do to, and, and generally it's store energy and, and build things, take in these molecules and build something bigger from them. So that's, that's the thematic effects of insulin throughout the body. But of course, again, the most famous is what insulin does to glucose. Mm. So what is meant exactly by insulin, uh, insulin resistance and what is happening in the body when that is, when that is occurring? Yeah, so that's a relevant question because of how prevalent insulin resistance is and how relevant it is in, as you noted earlier, in virtually every chronic disease. So I, I very much um, contend that everyone ought to know what this problem is. And that's kind of my, my professional mission in a way. So insulin resistance is two things. Um, one is the compromised insulin signaling itself. And by that, I mean some cells of the body aren't responding as well as they were before to the hormone insulin. So they are insulin resistant. That's the insulin resistance part of it. But mind you, not all of the cells are compromised. Many of the body cells continue to respond to insulin as perfectly as they ever did. That becomes a problem in light of the second pillar of, of insulin resistance. So the first is the altered insulin signaling itself or insulin resistance. The second is the hyperinsulinemia or the chronically elevated insulin. In the, in the body, when the body is in insulin resistance, blood insulin levels are several times higher than they used to be. Well, that's uh, nothing to the cells that are actually insulin resistant because they become deaf to that signal anyway. So cranking up the volume isn't going to bother them. However, as I noted, the cells that are still very sensitive to insulin, now they are inundated with this, this dramatically elevated insulin. So now the insulin is forcing these cells to do more than they would have wanted to do ideally. So again, insulin resistance is two things. One, it's altered insulin signaling at different cells of the body and two, chronically elevated insulin called hyperinsulinemia. So I think everyone listening to this can can almost hear how how passionate you are about this. I think your passion is almost jumping through the screen when you talk about it, whenever I've heard you talk about it. What is it that's made you dedicate such a large portion of your life to this specifically? Yeah, insulin resistance appears to be the great mediator between fat tissue and disease. Or maybe I'll get even more specific, <clears throat> between fat cells and disease. In the very beginning of my master's degree, I just became increasingly fascinated by fat cells. And it was because I had stumbled ac across one single manuscript that outlined how fat cells produced pro-inflammatory proteins and, and produced hormones. And that to me was a total revelation. I only thought of the fat cells up until that point as just storage depots. Uh, something to take in the excess energy when it's available and something to let that energy go when the body needs it. With, and mind you, that's a fascinating role in and of in itself. But I learning that the fat cells were having these systemic effects that they could tell distant cells of the body to do things and to behave differently. That was fascinating. And insulin resistance is the is the connection. If you have 
fat cells that are making the body sick, it's in almost every instance, but not every instance, it's generally going to be because of what it's doing to insulin resistance. So I think everyone listening right now is probably thinking, I pray to God, this isn't me. What are some of the indicators that somebody may be insulin resistant? Yeah. Yeah. So there are several that we could go through. In fact, I'll mention a few, but at its simplest, I would say if a person is fatter around their middle than they know they should be, and that's maybe a little vague. So in fact, maybe, let me get a little more specific. If they are able to measure their waist to hip ratio, so they measure with a measuring tape, the largest part around their belly, then the largest part around their buttocks or hips area. If that waist divided by hip number is over um, 0.8 for men or around 0.9 for women, then that's a, that's a bit of a red flag. That's a bit of a warning. But alone, we would say that's not going to be enough. But I would say if someone has that, you know, little, they're chubbier than they know they should be, and they have elevated blood pressure, almost guaranteed that person has insulin resistance. Now, we could take it a little further. If they have a family history, if they have a, um, an immediate relative with type 2 diabetes, they are at, at a higher risk. If the man has erectile dysfunction, that could be the earliest, one of the earliest symptoms of insulin resistance, even in men in their 20s. If a woman has polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, which is the most common infertility in women, that is almost totally a disease of insulin resistance. And, and then maybe on the most obvious end in some people, if a person has skin tags, then they're very likely insulin resistant. And skin tags are little, like little kind of stalks of, of skin or like a little pillar, a teeny little column of skin. And it's just these little bumps that people will get around their armpits or around their neck, typically. And uh, those are very, very, a very strong sign of insulin resistance. So any of those things and a handful more, um, those would be something for someone to be paying attention to in themselves or in a loved one um, in order to gauge where they are at on that spectrum of insulin resistance versus insulin sensitive. So I think a big thing when it comes to any health issue, people start to assume, yeah, this may be a problem, but it's very unlikely that it's affecting me. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone just, they they turn the blind eye and just rather not know. But how common is it for someone to be insulin resistant? And are there any particular groups that it tends to trend in more than others? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so insulin resistance is very likely the single most common health problem um, in the world. Uh, by way of non-infectious problems. I know that's a very bold statement. And the, the, the raw statistics on confirming insulin resistance, which is also known as prediabetes, would suggest that a little under half of adults in the Western world, and to be honest, um, it's, it's at least as bad, if not worse, throughout the Middle East and, and much of Asia, China and India included, um, are actually potentially worse, especially India, than the rates we have here in the U.S. Uh, So it's very, very common. The problem with those um, statistics that would seek to confirm insulin resistance is that many people have it and they don't know. And that's me sort of getting into uh, a different topic, but it's so often undiagnosed or it's misdiagnosed. Someone simply knows that they have hypertension or they have infertility or they have uh, fatty liver disease, 
and they wouldn't have received a diagnosis of insulin resistance, although it is almost certainly going to be the cause of that problem. The reason insulin resistance is undiagnosed so often is that we don't look at insulin. Insulin has continued to be playing uh, sort of second fiddle to glucose. So when we look at insulin resistance, we almost only ever view it as early on the spectrum towards type 2 diabetes. That isn't wrong. Insulin resistance is absolutely the foundation of type 2 diabetes. You cannot have type 2 diabetes without insulin resistance. It is simply insulin resistance that has progressed so bad that the glucose has changed. But in fact, let me, let me elaborate briefly. So here we have insulin and we have glucose, these two clinical um, values that, that I would say need to be viewed to understand uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. What's happening over the years in this individual is that they're becoming progressively insulin resistant and the insulin is several times higher and climbing and climbing every year, but the glucose is staying normal. And because we don't look at insulin, we have a glucose centric paradigm of these things. We miss the insulin entirely. And then it's only when the body has become so resistant to its insulin, even though it's swimming in a sea of insulin, now the glucose starts to climb. Well, then we detect the problem. Unfortunately, it was 20 years perhaps, or, or even longer um, later. If, if we, by looking at the glucose, we miss the problem until it's a very big problem. And we could have detected the problem decades earlier, potentially, if we had been looking at the insulin. But we, we don't. Insulin has just never managed to kind of break through to that elite level of being measured on every single blood test. We will measure, whether it's in the UK or in North America or anywhere else, we always measure glucose. We always measure lipids. And that is sometimes the end of it. We never measure insulin. It's just not become part of the conversation. And you know, that's why I'm, I'm on the rooftop screaming this because I, I believe that once we can shift that paradigm away from glucose, not that glucose doesn't have value clinically, it certainly does, but it really pales in comparison to the value that insulin has. So the sooner we can pivot and look at insulin, we can not only detect problems sooner, we can treat them better. Because, for example, back to that paradigm I was describing, in type 2 diabetes, insulin is up and now glucose is up. Because we only care about the glucose, the average clinician is going to say, well, you know what, let's just give you more insulin. Let's just put you on insulin therapy. Now we've pushed their insulin to super physiological levels and it works to bring the glucose down. But if this truly were just a glucose problem, then everything would get better. And yet in that situation of giving a type two diabetic insulin, everything gets worse. They get fatter and they get sicker and they die faster. It's because it's an insulin problem, not a glucose problem. Mm. It's like you mentioned, I was gonna say, do, do you think that insulin resistance sort of goes hand in hand with the rising um, obesity epidemic that we seem to be facing in the world. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In fact, you don't even have to get to obesity. What's so interesting, you'd asked me about earlier, and I failed to, to address it, about different groups of people that may have greater concerns with regards to insulin resistance. It, it really is a matter of um, how fat can you get and stay healthy with mm -hmm. that fat. And I like to joke um, and I hope it's never offensive that if you want to be fat, then you want to be Caucasian or European, Northern European descent, because Caucasians appear to be able to get fatter than other ethnicities and stay healthier. 
And on the other side of this, you have someone of, say, Chinese, Asian ethnicity or, or Asian Indian ethnicity who has a very low tend. They tend to have a much lower threshold of how much fat that body can hold before they start to get sick. So, for example, I was doing my, my fellowship in Singapore, this beautiful country, former British colony. So it's English speaking, has British um, you know, law carryover, which means it's a wonderful country. And I mean that in all sincerity. As someone who was born in Canada and now living in the US, there's something to be said for the British Empire. So nevertheless, Singapore had an express interest in studying metabolic disorders across, across ethnicities because the differences are so striking where you can take a Caucasian, you know, your Northern European fellow, and you have a Chinese Singaporean, both of these Singaporean guys, but you know, different ethnicities, they start to get fat. And the Chinese ethnicity will start to suffer from that body fat at remarkably low body fat levels. Wow. The Caucasian is looking at the Chinese guy thinking, well, you're maybe the slightest bit chubby, um, but nothing, you know, and yet that, um, Chinese ethnicity is starting to get hypertension, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease. And the Asian guy who's just as chubby, or sorry, the Caucasian European man, he's he's doing fine because his threshold for storing fat is so much higher on, on average. You know, there are, of course, differences within every ethnicity, uh, of, of course, but on average, um, that those ethnicities are going to really experience the consequences of fat gain very very differently to the point that that asian ethnicities in general need to be um their body fatness needs to be held to a different gauge or a different metric because the traditional bmi measurements that would work say with a caucasian or african ethnicity it doesn't hold up for asian ethnicities because they start to suffer from the consequences of that fatness much much sooner yeah i was going to say something like bmi that's sort of Yep. This universally used rule of thumb, it just it, it seems too generalized to to be you know applicable to to anyone. That's right. Yeah, it it just starts to fall apart across the ethnicities and the inherent differences between them. Now you cite a number of lifestyle factors that can contribute to insulin resistance. I'd like to talk about a few of those. One that I'm mm -hmm. particularly conscious about at the moment, um, after reading a few books on the subject, is you mentioned sleep. What role can yeah. sleep play in insulin? That, that came as quite a surprise to me. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful effect, isn't it? It's actually one, I, I appreciate that you're pointing it out because it's one that's um, a little discouraging for me as I've struggled with sleep for years. Um, and, and to this day, I'm a terrible sleeper, even when I engage in perfect habits. Uh, so so I, that's one that's close to my heart. Uh, even one bad night of sleep um, can result in demonstrable insulin resistance the next day. Now, that's not to say that it's permanent, not at all. Get a good night and everything's gone. But the problem becomes that as you have one bad night after another after another, I, although I'm now extrapolating from the available data a little bit, but it's not hard to imagine that one, as you continue to have one bad night after another, what was, what was originally an acute problem with insulin resistance now becomes a genuine chronic problem that starts feeding in, it starts feeding itself. So. Uh, what mediates these two things, sleep deprivation or, or poor sleeping with insulin resistance, is the stress hormones. If you sleep poorly, a human will have higher levels of cortisol and epinephrine. Those are the stress hormones, and sleep deprivation is a stress. 
might not seem like a stress in a conventional situation that you're trying to run away from a bear, which is of course not conventional at all, or you're experiencing a great deal of stress for, through work or, or home obligations. No, sleep deprivation is its unique is a unique stress, but it still plays into those same two stress hormones, those prototypical hormones, epinephrine, or also known as adrenaline and cortisol. Now, those do mediate the, the body's um, response to stress. What they have in common also is that they are both what's called insulin antagonists. They make in they make the body a little insulin resistant because those two stress hormones, among their many many actions, they are trying to increase blood glucose because they want your body to be ready for for. Uh, an, an excitement uh, to do something, to act, to get out of that stressful situation. Of course, there's no running away from poor sleep, so it doesn't work. It's our own stress response kind of working against us in that case. But nevertheless, that's how we're hardwired. And so those stress hormones are trying to push the glucose up. That means insulin, which is trying to push the glucose down, has to continue to work harder and harder and harder. And we're so we're pitting these two signals against each other. These stress hormones trying to increase glucose, insulin trying to push it back down. And in this case of sleep deprivation, the stress signal and, and, the, and the insulin resistance wins that battle. Oh, that's really, especially for, for myself, I struggle with sleep, like you mentioned, so that does quite hit home a bit. Um, another one that hit, ho hit home for me is, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm British, I drink a lot of tea. Now, I tried to take sugar out of the equation a long time ago. I started <laughs> using sweeteners. I drink quite a few cups of tea a day. I have quite a lot of sweeteners. You mentioned sweeteners. What, what, what effect did they have on it on this? Yeah, yeah. What a great question. I'm thrilled you brought that up because it's such a, a topic of interest. In general, sweeteners are just fine. In general, it's a pretty safe bet um, that across the broad, broad class of sweeteners, whatever the sweetener is, in general, it's going to be just fine and there's no reason to worry about it. Um, in fact, I could almost end it there, but I'll elaborate a little more. Um, but although the sort of diminishing returns, I'd say someone could just take that point and take that and, and listen to nothing else over the next minute. I am more of an advocate of the natural sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit mm. than I am the others. But even something like uh, even something as broad as aspartame, which is in every um, diet soda, it, there's no evidence really to suggest that's a problem. And so in general, the sweetener itself is fine. However, a note of caution is that uh, there is something unnatural, and I don't mean wrong, but there's something unnatural about tasting something sweet and not having glucose levels go up. That's the way it would work in nature because anything that would taste sweet in nature would have carbohydrates. There's no exception. It's not a protein. It's not a fat. It's a carbohydrate that tastes sweet. Now, of course, not all carbohydrates, but if it is something sweet, it would have come with glucose. And so the body is primed to be ready for that glucose. So in some instances, there are reports that you taste something sweet and you get a little bit of an insulin spike. Um, I would say that's less of a problem. The bigger problem is that your body, your brain feels this sweetness. It senses this sweetness and it starts to drive you to want to eat the carbohydrates that should have come with that sweetness. So you're sitting there drinking that diet soda or that, um, that sweetened tea with an artificial sweetener 
or an, even a natural non-caloric sweetener. And, and then afterwards, in the following hours, you're, perhaps the cravings start to mount, where now all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, geez, I wasn't going to have any biscuits or, or bread or toast with this, but now I just have to. I just have to. Whereas you might have been able to resist that temptation more easily without that sweet sensation. Now, all of that <clears throat> is a very is very much a sort of relative area because I know many, many people that can taste a, a, a sweetener and have no temptation. They can drink that diet soda or that tea or that coffee and, and be perfectly content and put it down and be done. But I also know people who will eat that something sweet and and it just lights up a part of their brain that they they are they're kind of biting their knuckle for the next few hours doing everything they can to resist the increasing cravings driving them to want to eat something they know they shouldn't that would be my only point of caution with sweeteners in general i think sweeteners are perfectly fine as long as the person knows they can handle it without then um spilling into other behavior that they know they shouldn't hmm. so the, the the only negative effects i would imagine completely outweigh the effects of something like sugar. I mean, we've had a, a lot of guys from the nutrition space on the show, like Dr. Neil Barnard, uh, Frank Lipman, they all talk about sugar as if it's this, this devil. Well, what is your relationship like with sugar? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I think sugar is something that we eat far, far too much of, and it has no real nutritional value. <clears throat> I will, however, say that our bodies at least know what to do with it. That we're, we, we have all the, and, and I'll elaborate more on that in just a second, I guess, because that sounds, that might sound a bit strange. We, we know how to metabolize sugar. Our bodies are well adapted to, to this. <clears throat> I say that only in contrast to something like soybean oil, you know, where, where our ancestors a thousand years ago were eating honey. And honey is sugar based. It is nature's sugar, a mix of glucose and fructose, very much like sugar is. Not even a hundred years ago, no one was eating soybean oil and, and canola oil and corn oil. So these seed oils, and I hate to, I don't mean to really shift the topic into that, but I view the biggest changes and the biggest problem with the modern um, human diet is the excessive consumption of refined carbohydrates and refined oils. If I had to pick, <clears throat> I would say the refined oils are perhaps more pathological in, in the long term, simply because we are ill adapted um, to eating those oils, that that amount of, of that those types of fats is is totally new in the human diet. Total, mind you, so too, of course, is the amount of refined starches and sugars we're eating. But we at least know how to metabolize those. It's not healthy, and it'll certainly start contributing to disease, including insulin resistance. But and both of them will, but. Sugar is terrible. Um, it, I, I think someone could cut it out and live a significantly healthier life than ever eating it. But sugar is also delicious. It's wonderful. It's so fun to be able to enjoy. So I would never try to impose that kind of restriction in my home, um, uh, frankly, just because I wouldn't want to deprive my family of, of the fun that comes from eating treats from time to time. But my challenge then as as the adult and the dad is to make sure that it is a treat when we have it. It is not a daily occurrence. Mm. One, one thing I'd love to get your take on is, is different diet approaches, because it's a topic I, I ask, you know, people might be sick of me asking by now, but I want to find the, the information. There's, 
a lot of debate in terms of different diet approaches. There's maybe the Mediterranean. Then on one end of the spectrum, you have the vegan approach. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the carnivore approach. There's paleo, there's keto, there's all these different diet types. Have you noticed any correlations between a specific diet type and insulin resistance? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will just say at the risk of offending a significant number of people, I am vehemently opposed to veganism wow. in, in every way, shape or form. So I'll make that incredibly clear up front. I think that it is uh, completely antithetical to human development and human survival. We are not herbivores um, by any objective measurement. Now, I know that when it comes to veganism, there's it's it's not scientific. It's more in the realm of almost kind of a religious um, zeal where the, the fervor that comes with someone being vegan. And I, I don't mean for that to sound offensive, actually. I, I truly don't. Um, in some instances, someone's doing it because they feel it's more of a moral um, situation. <clears throat> I will, to kind of dispel that idea a little bit, and, and to speak completely as a scientist and a life scientist at that, a cell biologist, some, everything that is living is living because it benefits from something that died. Now, I say that because perhaps the moral vegan is going to say, well, I'm not going to eat animal foods because I don't want to contribute to killing that animal. Well, that is wrong thinking because everything that we eat is something that was alive and we've killed it. Um, even growing plants, that, 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 anyway, it doesn't matter what it is we're eating. We are, alive, we are alive because we're benefiting from something that died, plant or animal. <clears throat> so it's just you pick what you're, uh, what you're going to do. But even that, beside the point, there are essential, there are fats that are essential to humans um, <clears throat> that you cannot get from plants. There are amino acids that are essential to humans that you'd have a very hard time getting from plants that you get very easily from animals. <clears throat> and there are different, so, so there are different other nutrients so, so that you would be absent in. So to be vegan, <clears throat> and I promise I'll stop talking about that. Um, it is a privilege of the elite. You have to be educated enough to know what you're deficient in because you will be deficient in nutrients. There's no question. Absolutely, you will be. And you have to be wealthy enough to afford the high quality supplements to make up for it. So I don't think a vegan diet is um, uh, a sustainable or even practical diet for a human. Now, to me, <clears throat> the best nutritional policies are as follows, three ideas. <clears throat> One, control carbohydrates. So make sure that you're focusing on the less refined carbohydrates. Focus mostly on fruits and vegetables and then put grains and anything else, especially if it comes in a bag or a box with a barcode, put them much, much further back in the diet. So focus on fruits and vegetables. So that's control carbohydrates because carbohydrates are what will spike insulin the most. And the frequent Spiking of insulin is one of the main drivers of insulin resistance. You want to keep insulin down. So, and, and controlling carbohydrates is a very good way to do that. And then the next two ideas kind of come together. Make sure you're getting enough protein. So I say prioritize protein and <clears throat> don't fear fat. We have a very strong um, cultural fear of fat where we've been told for decades that it's terrible and we should avoid it at all costs. And I think that is absolutely asinine um, advice. I think it is wrong on every level. And the clinical studies back me up, uh, frankly. Otherwise, I wouldn't be an advocate of it. So um, 
protein, the best proteins to kind of elaborate on these two points a little more are animal proteins. <clears throat> that is objectively the case. And I know we have, it's, it's very popular nowadays to have plant proteins um, and they simply don't work as well. Uh, plant proteins don't have the complement of amino acids that animal proteins do. We don't absorb them as well um, from plant sources. And part of that could be that plant proteins have things called anti-nutrients. That almost sounds like the stuff of myth, but it is absolutely, these are real molecules, tannins, phytic acids, trypsin inhibitors that come with these refined plant proteins that will, that will physically inhibit our intestines ability to digest those proteins. And another knock against plant protein, uh, in addition to the fact that they're very refined artificial proteins is that they don't come with fat. Protein is supposed to come with fat. And by that, I mean, in nature, the best proteins do come with fat, egg, dairy, and meat. And fat helps protein digest better. So with those animal proteins, not only are you getting better amino acids, but you're actually getting them. You're actually getting them from your guts into your blood where you need them to be because the fat helps those protein digestive enzymes work better. And that's very likely why fat and protein together are more anabolic. They actually build muscle better than protein alone. So anytime someone's just focusing on protein, I would just want to be that little whisper in their ear saying, but are you getting fat with that protein as well? Because you should. It, it makes it all work better. So to me, um, those are the three dietary strategies based on each of the three macronutrients. And I, I evaluate them the way I do for multiple reasons. Carbohydrates, I think, need to be controlled because they have the greatest spike of insulin, whereas protein and fat have very little or no effect on insulin. And dietary carbohydrates are not essential to humans in any, in any degree. We have zero biological need for dietary carbohydrates. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't eat any and that we should all go carnivore. I'm not saying that. But you could. Every one of us could do that, and we'd be perfectly healthy. It would be an adjustment. But the, all that we need in the human diet is there are essential amino acids. There are essential fatty acids. That is protein and fat. There's nothing essential about dietary carbohydrates. Even the most dogmatic dietitian would have to reluctantly disclose that fact. There's nothing essential about dietary carbohydrates. But again, I'm not saying we should eliminate them from the diet. Not at all. They can be healthy and they can be certainly enjoyed, but we shouldn't base, we shouldn't build our diet on the one macronutrient that we don't need. And that coincidentally has the biggest effect on insulin. But unfortunately, that's how we do it. We've been told to eat high carbohydrate, low fat diets. And I, I, I look at that and just think, well, why? First of all, where's the evidence to suggest this? Um, but, but why would we base our diet on the one macronutrient that we don't have an actual biological need for? It's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. We, we've, we've mentioned a lot of the, um, fit, the, the physical side, the, the physical effects on the body. But one thing that I think is becoming a, a, a popular topic, um, especially in the, in the health space in podcasts at the moment, is uh dementia or, yeah. or the mental effects and you know everyone's worried about you know one day when they grow up suffering from alzheimer's i think we've all seen the effects that it has is there a link between uh insulin resistance and alzheimer's disease 
Yeah, yeah. In fact, I love that you're bringing that up. That's one of the main motivations for me to adhere to the diet that I do, which basically is the points that I just mentioned. Because of my fear of Alzheimer's disease and seeing my grandma go through that, it terrifies me. So yes, uh, in fact, I'm alluding to that connection already. Yes, uh, Alzheimer's disease is very intimately connected to insulin resistance. In fact, um, people refer to it, actual di uh, Alzheimer's scientists refer to it as insulin resistance of the brain, or they'll say that it's kind of a unique type of diabetes and they'll call it type three diabetes. I don't agree with that latter classification. It's simply insulin resistance. I've mentioned earlier how insulin will control the movement of glucose into some cells. Well, the brain to some degree depends on insulin to stimulate that glucose uptake. And as the brain starts to become insulin resistant, the brain's need for glucose is up here, but now as it becomes insulin resistant, it, it creates this energetic gap where glucose can't fill all of the energetic need of the brain. And so now the brain is left with this energetic deficit wondering, well, I'm, I'm starving. I can't get all the energy that I need. And the brain does have a high energy demand. And so in order to just continue to survive, the brain's going to have to turn down its functions. And that would be manifest as some degree of cognitive decline. Now, <clears throat> to make this very relevant, we are just about to publish. We've already had it accepted for publication. We're just doing the final editing before it gets formally published. This manuscript where we um, explored the expression of metabolic genes in human brain samples. So these are post-mortem samples of people who died without Alzheimer's disease and compared that with people who died with confirmed Alzheimer's disease. And we looked at the expression of genes involved in glucose metabolism and ketone metabolism in four distinct areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus and a couple others. We found that almost every gene involved in glucose metabolism from the taking in of the glucose and the breaking down of the glucose was significantly down in the Alzheimer's brains wow. compared to the normal brains. However, the genes involved in ketone metabolism, there were, I think, a couple that were down, but otherwise they were totally normal across both sets of these brains. So in Alzheimer's disease, there is, there is in fact a quantifiable, you can measure this, reduction in the, in the degree to which the brain takes in and metabolizes glucose even before Alzheimer's in, in early cognitive decline. So much of the problem with Alzheimer's, as much as we have focused on plaques for decades, these brain plaques disrupting the brain, that has just not held up under intense scrutiny. What is still um, a viable theory is that Alzheimer's disease, as happens with, mind you, with other neurological problems like migraines and epilepsy, it's really a problem of energy where it's an energy deficit of the brain. And, and as I said, the evidence just continues to support that idea. So, and then again, to make it back to, to bring it back to insulin resistance, <clears throat> insulin tells the brain, like it does every cell, what to do with energy. And if insulin isn't working well, then the brain just doesn't know what to do. The body is swimming in a sea of, of glucose in these instances, and yet the brain feels like it can't get enough to drink. Wow. So I think everyone at this point listening who's made it this far, they probably sat up right now. Their mind's probably thinking, right, I want yeah, to get to work so. on this. So for, for those people, as we start to wind down now, if we could give them some practical takeaways that they could start doing today, things they can start being conscious about today, uh, what, what, what practical things you, would you recommend for them to, do, mm -hmm. to start being conscious of? 
Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a great question. I would say change breakfast tomorrow. Overnight, as someone has been sleeping, insulin has slowly been coming down, which is a wonderful thing. I am totally convinced that the key to a healthy long life is keeping insulin low as much as possible. Not that it's a villain. It'll come up sometimes and it should, but we need to keep it as low as possible, as much as possible. So as overnight, insulin has been coming down. And then in the morning, tragically, as so often happens everywhere in the world, this is not just a Western problem. Breakfast is based on a starchy, sugary meal. You know, it's a bagel and sweetened coffee. It's two bowls of cereal and a glass of orange juice. Basically, it's pure garbage. It will spike up insulin. It will spike up glucose. And so the average person wakes up. Insulin has finally come down, and it's been down for a few hours, helping the body be a little more insulin sensitive, activating some fat burning. And then we turn it all off, and we, we slam down on the fat burning. We, start to, we spike up the insulin. And then unfortunately, by starting the morning that way, it basically sets the person up to fail the rest of the day because two or three hours later, the insulin and the glucose start coming down and the person senses this hunger, even though there's no reason they should be hungry and they have to do it again and they do it again and they do it again. And so they're spending every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin. And that is a wonderful way to get fat and sick. Wow. So change breakfast tomorrow, <clears throat> follow those three rules, control carbs, prioritize protein, fill with fat. And if you're going to eat, follow those rules or alternatively fast through breakfast. That's almost always what I do. I will take and I'll drink a cup of yerba mate, like a tea. I'll drink a cup of tea and I'll be making breakfast for my children. And I'll certainly allow more liberties for my children, but I always make breakfast. That's just sort of the dynamic in the home. And so this morning I made these kind of lower carb, higher protein and fat waffles and I let them have as much butter as they wanted. They could use syrup. I don't mind. These are little growing kids. I want them to enjoy the waffles. And we were talking as they were eating breakfast and we're just busy in the mornings and I'm just sipping my cup of tea. Now I will have a big lunch and I will follow those three rules again. And then later today I'll have dinner with my family. And my rule on dinner is I will eat dinner with my family. Now, my wife tends to look at nutrition similarly as I do, so it's rarely that dinner is going to be very unhealthy. But regardless, I will eat dinner with my family, and then that gets me to maybe my second rule. So the first rule is control breakfast tomorrow, and then my second rule would be when dinner is over, stop eating. Be done. In fact, relevant to the, what we were talking about earlier, the single most helpful thing I have ever done to improve my sleeping is not eating within about three hours or so before I go to bed, more if I can do it. Uh, going to bed on a full stomach is a wonderful way to make sure that you sleep miserably. It absolutely will, it'll make you hotter. Your stomach will be bothering you. Um, your heart rate will be higher um, this entire time while your body is very working very hard to digest when it wants to be sleeping and slowing things down. Having a full stomach won't let you do that. So change breakfast tomorrow <clears throat> or fast through it entirely, but that would still be changing it. And then second, stop eating after dinner. Don't don't snack. If you, for me, that's when my cravings are the worst. I confess, I will um, I will have club soda or sparkling water um, with ice, and I will just put in some apple cider vinegar, 
it's very tart and it's just as a nice thing I can sort of be sipping on in the evening, helping the kids with homework or getting them to bed and then watching a show or whatever it may be. So have a strategy to help get through that evening, which is when most people have the most cravings. Fantastic advice and practicality. I love it. The, the question that we always end on with every guest, now the answer to this, it could be anything. It could be your research. It could be your family. It could be anything. But for you right now, for Ben Bickman, what makes a life worth living? Uh, yeah, yeah, what a great question. Um, for me, it is to, as you touched on, it is to remember what matters most. And I will say no success I have as, as a scientist and professor will make up for a failure to meet my obligations to my family. So the secret for me to a good life is making sure that my family comes first, always giving my wife and children the best, the best of my efforts. And remember that anything else I'm doing is really, it should be a way to help me be a better family man. Beautiful, man. I got goosebumps when you said that's a beautiful answer. Ah, good, Look, good. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you have too. Oh, I sure have. Yeah, thanks so much for reaching out. I, I, I think that anyone listening would have come away uh, edified, having learned something they didn't know before. That's the hope, at least. Amazing. And just before we go, where can everyone find you online, find the book and whatnot? Yeah, yeah. So thanks again. The name of the book is Why We Get Sick. It's available anywhere books are sold. Um, and it's it's kind of just goes into a lot of what we were talking about. What is insulin resistance? Why does it matter? Um, uh, and, and what to do about it? And, and again, I hope I've given people the impression that it matters more than you think. It touches on almost any chronic disease. It's, it's very surprising. I'm fairly busy on social media, um, uh, uh, Instagram especially, and that's Ben Bickman, PhD. And uh, also I regularly contribute to um, blog posts uh, on a site called Get Health, H-L-T-H, and people can learn more about a meal replacement shake that I've helped design with actually with a couple of my brothers at that same website, get health, hlth.com. Amazing. I'll leave all those links in the description below. Ben, thanks again, my man. My pleasure. This was great. Thank you so much for joining me today again on Monday. It has been a pleasure spending time with you. Thank you for your attention today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to check out this episode and more, as well as a lot of fun clips from the podcast. Please subscribe to our Freedom Pact YouTube channel. We're having a lot of fun over there, so please come and join us. We hope you'll join us again right here on whatever podcast platform you're listening on on Friday, where we will be back with another episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. I hope to see you there.